Have you always wondered what dark matter is? Can we even see it, let alone measure it? And what would discovery imply for our understanding of the universe? In this episode, we'll take a look at the cosmos with Maggie Liu. She'll tell us what research in astrophysics is made of, what model she worked on at the European Space Agency, and how Bayesian the world of space science is. Maggie Liu did her PhD in the Astronomy and Space Department of the University of Birmingham. She's now a research fellow of machine learning and cosmology and working on projects in preparation for Euclid, a space-based telescope whose goal is to map the dark universe and help us learn about the nature of dark matter and dark energy. In a nutshell, she tries to help us better understand the entire cosmos. Even more amazing, she uses the Stan library and applies Bayesian statistical methods to decipher her astronomical data. But Maggie is not just a Bayesian astrophysicist, she also loves photography and rock climbing. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, Episode 9, recorded January 17, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasestats.anvil.app. That's learnbasestats.anvil.app. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian Change your predictions after taking information in And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing Let's adjust those expectations What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence And doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info And adjusts the probability Cause every belief is provisional And when I kick a flow mostly Hey I'm folks, just a quick note before the show I'd like to to do two or three special episodes per year uh, with guests not directly from the Bayesian world, but still related to science and our uh, programming, of course. I thought this could be a good way to expand our perspective and be inspired by what's going on elsewhere. And the nice thing is you'll be able to send me questions to ask the guests directly. My first guest for this experiment will be Michael Kennedy, the creator of Talk Python Training, the host of the most popular Python podcast and a cornerstone of the Python world. Michael is a very knowledgeable and respected member of the community, so I'm very happy to share his thoughts uh, with you on Python's rise and future, on its role in science and research, and any other nerdy questions you have in mind. So you have until February 19 to send me all your questions via Twitter, email, or any other means you fancy. I really can't wait to see what you thought about. Okay, on to the show now. Maggie Lou, welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you for taking the time. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. You're my first guest from the astronomy world. <laughs> Hopefully not the last. Oh yeah, no, I don't think you'll be the last. Uh, I have to say I'm a little intimidated because I don't know much about astronomy, but it's a topic I really like to discover. So it's great. Thank you again for taking the time. Maybe I thought that we could start by some definitions because most of my audience is more in the statistics world than in the astronomy world. So I bet they have kind of the same question as I have. I'm sure this is very basic for you, but can you tell me the difference between astronomy, astrophysics, and cosmology? Because uh, I saw you work on all of them, but for a layperson like me, uh, they are kind of interchangeable, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say a person like you taking them as interchangeable is absolutely fine. More specifically, though, for me, I would say that an astronomer specifically works on telescopes and works on the raw data that you get from a telescope. Actually, even though a lot of people do astronomy, some people will never use a telescope in their life. They wouldn't be able to point out any constellations or specific stars in the sky. So for me, a professional astronomer is someone who knows how to use a telescope and knows how to deal with the data from the telescope. I started my PhD seven years ago and I've been to one like big astronomical telescope. So you can see like, yeah, I haven't worked that much with telescopes and taking my own data. Usually there's several people working on a project and different people will take the data for you and then you might just analyze the data or produce the results further down the line. Astrophysics, on the other hand, I would say these are people who 
who are actually analyzing the data and deriving like the physical meaning from the data. So what physics are going on on these astronomical systems? So these are the people who are actually dealing not with the raw data, but like process data typically, and like trying to extract like the information that we're interested in from them by doing data analysis things. Astronomy and astrophysics, I would say they are pretty much interchangeable. Most people who do astronomy also do astrophysics. Cosmology, on the other hand, is a bit more specific. So cosmology is like the study of the universe that we live in, in particular, like how it began and how it evolved. So people who work on the Big Bang, for example. Me specifically, I work on what are known as the cosmological parameters. So there are some models that we have defined that can describe the entire universe that we live in, all of its past, its present and its future. Is it going to shrink back down into kind of a reverse Big Bang or is it going to continue expanding on forever? So in the most simplest model we have to explain the whole universe, there's like six numbers that can describe the entire universe that we live in. And they can be parameterized in various ways, but generally that people are looking for parameters that, for example, describe how fast the universe is expanding and how much dark matter there is in the universe and how much dark energy there is in the universe, for example. Okay. And you work mostly on the cosmological side of things? Yeah. So when I entered astronomy and astrophysics, my project was for cosmologies to infer these kind of cosmological parameters. So I would say I'm a cosmologist as well as okay. an astronomer and astrophysicist. Okay. That's fascinating. And thank you for these uh, very clear definitions. Generally, for a layperson, I would say they're pretty much interchangeable. We look at things in the sky. <laughs> yeah, but it's really interesting to see these different kinds of work. Actually, I think it's, it's going to be easier uh, for us now to understand what you do and what's your background. And from what I understood, you went into cosmology and I say space science <laughs> generically really early, right? So how come? What's the story behind that? My undergraduate degree is in astronomy, space science and astrophysics. This is because I've known since a very young age that I wanted to work in space. Like I've always wanted to be an astronaut and my teachers at school always said that like I would be the first to design a, a spacesuit, like a pink spacesuit specifically, actually. <laughs> so I knew I wanted to do something to do with space and get into space studies. And that's why I took that specific degree. During this degree, I also took a year out to study in Los Angeles at UCLA. And that's when I first really got into cosmology. There's a really good group there who work on cosmology research topics. And I was just fascinated by it. So I knew when I got to my PhD stage on topics that I wanted to do, I knew I wanted to do something to understand how the universe works, how it's going to evolve, basically. Yeah, so from a very young age, you knew that you wanted to do that. That's amazing. And I've been lucky enough to have a postdoc position, a research fellowship position at the European Space Agency, which was like my absolute dream job working for a space agency. So I think I've been really lucky. Yeah, yeah. We're going to talk about that later. Yeah, definitely. But first, just to establish some more background about you, I'm guessing that you're using computers to help you with all your work. So I wonder if you've got a favorite programming language. What do you work in usually? Okay, I guess when I started programming, we learned Fortran and MATLAB in our undergraduate degree. That's what I started off with. And Fortran was absolutely horrendous to work with. I did a master's project simulating molecular clouds. So the clouds of gas and dust where stars form. I was obviously still very young then and could not code up an entire embody simulation by myself. So I inherited code as people usually do from their supervisors. And this was completely an IDL, which is like a horrible, horrible astronomical programming language as well. And it's really expensive. There's an upkeep that you have to pay to use it, a license that you have to pay for it. But still, a lot of the older generation astronomers still use IDL. And I still work with a lot of simulation people now who only program in IDL. So if I want to look at their code or if they give me some of their code that they want me to run something on, I have to know IDL, which thankfully I do. I also learned Python myself, probably starting at 
the start of my PhD, I started picking up Python. But like at some point in the first year of my PhD, I discovered R. Instantly, I fell in love with R. So R is my favorite programming language since I discovered it. But I use all of these other languages as well. I'm familiar with Python, IDL, MATLAB, Fortran, whatever. But R is usually my go-to. I'm doing a lot of machine learning nowadays, and that means... I also code in TensorFlow. At the time, TensorFlow wasn't available in R, so I'm using a lot of Python for that as well. It's only it's got a wraparound in Python. I like R because it's got a really easy syntax, and a lot of the work that I do is statistical analysis. And with R, there's packages for everything in stats, and it handles the data really well. I also like all the pretty plots that you can make in it. I think that's very versatile in R. And another reason that I like R is um, I do a lot of my Bayesian statistics work using Stan. Stan has a great implementation in R. It's available in Python and other things, but I think the availability of the kind of things that you can do is much better in R than it is in Python. Plus, uh, R and Stan are open source, so it's, uh, yeah. I guess it's something that's really good uh, for you to not having to pay uh, very expensive fees. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so actually you said that you were working with Stan, so I guess that's something that speaks to our uh, listeners, which means that you use Bayesian methods in your research. And actually, I wonder if you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods and why do you use them today? Yeah, I do actually. In my field, there isn't that many people who use Bayesian methods or statistics in general. But during the first year of my PhD, I shared an office with various astronomers and astrophysicists. They work in various fields. One of the fields that was quite big at the University of Birmingham, where I did my PhD at the time, was gravitational waves. And the gravitational wave community had really adopted Bayesian methods because their signals that they were trying to measure were so tiny compared to all of the noise on top of that. So gravitational waves are ripples in space and time that are emitted, for example, when two black holes merge together, then it will generate this kind of wave through space and time that kind of stretches and squishes space and time like the universe that we live in. So on Earth, we wouldn't feel that because everything would be stretched and squashed at the same rate. But if you make these like giant detectors, you can detect this kind of perturbation caused by gravitational waves. And this like perturbation changes the dimensionality of space of the order of like, basically it changes it really, really tinily. So it's really difficult to measure. It's like of order of an atom that it changes the shape that is uh, tiny. So they need to use Bayesian methods. And so at the time, I was working on some parameter inference problem in my research. And so my research was measuring the masses of clusters of galaxies. So these clusters of galaxies are huge, like reservoirs of dark matter. And so if you know the mass of a galaxy cluster, then you can use it to infer cosmology because these systems, the point they form at the densest points in our universe. And as you can imagine, the number of galaxy clusters and their masses is sensitive to cosmology because if there was more dark energy in the universe, everything would be expanding more. So it'd be more difficult to form lots of these clusters of galaxies. But if there's more dark matter in the universe, there would be a lot of gravity pulling everything together. So you would form like more galaxy clusters, they would have larger masses. And so measuring these masses is really important. And we have theoretical models of how our observational data, which is the measurement of galaxies, affects the mass of galaxy clusters. So I use an effect called weak gravitational lensing. So when you observe galaxies on the sky, they have all sorts of shapes and orientations. So if you take an average of all the galaxies on the sky, expect on average all the shapes and orientations would cancel out. But if you have a galaxy cluster in the center, which has a massive amount of mass and hence massive amount of gravity, this actually pulls the light from distant galaxies behind the galaxy cluster towards the center of the galaxy cluster. And this distorts their shape. And so when you measure the average galaxy shape on the sky with a big massive galaxy cluster in the in your line of sight, then the average galaxy shape will no longer be zero. You'll get like a positive, positive residual. So 
there's these models that kind of map what we observe with these galaxies, the signal, um, to the mass of a galaxy cluster. And this is what I was doing. And then I was also doing some linear regression models because we couldn't measure the masses of all galaxy clusters, but we can measure things like the X-ray luminosity of these galaxy clusters or the uh, X-ray temperature because we have X-ray telescopes that actually see their emission. And we can use linear regression models to kind of map for a given luminosity or temperature what the mass of a galaxy cluster should be. So I was doing a lot of kind of parameter inference at the time, but I hadn't come across any Bayesian methods. So there was this guy and he worked in gravitational waves and I talked to him about my research and he said, oh, why don't you do it in a Bayesian manner? And he told me everything I need to know about Bayesian methods and priors and things like that. And I went away and I coded up my own Metropolis Hastings algorithm and it fit my like data beautifully and intuitively everything made sense. Like I have prior information. I know that these galaxy clusters shouldn't be less than 10 to 13 times the mass of our sun. And I know that there's no galaxy clusters over 10 to the 16 solar masses. So it makes sense to put this prior information into the models that I'm fitting. That's where like things clicked for me. Like why aren't people using Bayesian methods? We should all be doing it this way. Later on, in my second year of my PhD, I met Michael Bettencourt, who was working a lot on Stan at the time. And he introduced me to Stan. That was also a big like change in my way of working because I realized like simple Metropolis Hastings or Gibbs samplers were just not adequate if you want to go to bigger dimensions and work on like the bigger models that I'm working with today. That's fascinating. And actually, before diving into your uh, projects, you wondered why people weren't using Bayesian methods in your field or even statistics, or as you said, did you figure out why? To be honest, I haven't really figured it out at all. I guess like in astronomy, there's not that many young people because there's not many fixed positions. If you want a tenure position, you have to wait till one of the professors dies because most professors, they never retire. They continue working and holding on to their position even after they retire. So if you look at the kind of age and like distribution of like the academic staff working on astronomical research, a lot of them are like narrow-minded professors and they're not really open to change. So I think they're stopped using their old methods. They think like, well, if it's working, why do I need to change. And a lot of the research in my field as well, there's not much progression going. I feel like at the moment, a lot of people are just doing the same analysis over and over again, different samples, different samples of stars, different samples of galaxies, but they're just doing the same one, same stuff over and over again and say, oh, we found the same thing or we're in agreement. I mean, sometimes you get better data, you get better telescopes, so you get better resolutions, for example. But generally, like the kind of underlying research that we're doing is not really gaining any breakthroughs. Even at my old job at the European Space Agency, I met some people who were fitting lines, but they didn't even put error bars on the line. Just simple error bars, there was none. And they didn't even know how to do that. So it's just worrying to me kind of how behind people are in my field. But I have no idea what's the underlying problem. Perhaps it's because it's much easier to just fit a line randomly through data and not error bars, but uncertainties, for example. But I don't know. Also, maybe this dimension of structurally, there is not enough Darwinism in the ideas because you have a lot of people that have been there for a long time. And so old ideas that can be bad tend to take time to die and to give birth to new ideas and techniques. Yeah, I think another thing is that like our funding structure is very based upon how many papers that you publish and not the quality of them. And so people think it's very easy to do rubbish science as long as they can get a paper out so that they can get to the next job level. Mm, yeah, okay. That's very interesting. Not very optimistic, but interesting. Maybe to go back to more optimistic thoughts. Can you tell us before diving into what you do and what you did uh, in Madrid at the European Space Agency, can you tell us in general why you think research in astrophysics, well, astrophysics slash cosmology, as we said at the beginning, is so important and what are the common myths, misperceptions in the public about it, if there are any? 
Yeah, sometimes it seems very difficult to see how astronomical research relates to you in your day-to-day life. I mean, we're studying how the universe works, how stars form, how galaxies form, how all the material around us like comes into existence. But it's very difficult to see what you're doing in your day-to-day life that is impacted by this stuff. And one thing that we forget is a lot of the research that we do comes back into society to making our own lives better. For example, Einstein came up with general relativity and without general relativity, we wouldn't know about time delays and we wouldn't be able to get GPSs to work properly because they just wouldn't sync properly because the gravity up there in the skies is much different from down here on earth and so if you didn't take into account the general relativistic factors into your gps satellites then they would very quickly become out of sync we rely on gps navigation we rely on telecommunications which is a lot space-based nowadays even for example the internet was spewed out of physics because people in physics wanted a way to communicate quicker with each other and they came up with the internet so a lot of the kind of benefits to society are kind of side things that we generate from doing astrophysical research. Also, for example, we have giant particle accelerators here on Earth trying to figure out like the subatomic particles at universe, like what are things made up from on the subatomic levels. And without astrophysical theory, we wouldn't be able to understand the results that are coming out of these giant accelerators. I think lastly, the thing that's really important is that astrophysics is inspiring the future generations to do science research. There's not that many science research positions or astrophysics positions, and you'll see that less than 10% will continue on to a career in academia and do pure astrophysical research. Many of the others who do undergraduate degrees or do PhDs will go on to do other jobs like go into finance, go into engineering, and there's lots of other positions that astrophysics generates because we have very sought after skills. Astrophysicists tend to work a lot with data, so we make very good data analysts. We do a lot of critical thinking and problem solving, which are like very sought after skills. So I think inspiring future generations to get these positions and like get these skills is another important aspect of astrophysics. Yeah, okay. Very interesting. Yeah, it's true that you often hear that uh, astronomical research is uh, fascinating, but often deals with uh, stuff that happens a very, very, very long time ago or will happen uh, in the very, very far future. (laughs) But actually, no, we're impacted by astronomical research in our everyday life, as you said. Actually, can you tell us now what you did in Madrid, the European Space Agency, what was, as you said, your dream job? Yeah, absolutely. So I was a research fellow at the European Space Agency, which means I had the freedom to do whatever research that I wanted to do. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, it was really good. I was placed in the Euclid project, which is a space telescope that's due to launch in 2021. And its goal is to help us get a better understanding of dark energy and dark matter, so the dark universe. So it does this by measuring the shapes of galaxies and measuring their distortions, just as I talked about earlier with the weak gravitational lensing. And that can give us a better understanding of where the dark matter is in the universe and get constraints on the amount of dark energy and dark matter there is. Do we know that dark matter exists or is it still something we're trying to figure out. And if we know it exists, I guess the problem is that we can't see it. And so to measure it, it's very hard. Yes, absolutely. We don't know that dark matter exists. There is no direct evidence for existence. We've, we have dark matter detector experiments built all over the Earth. We've got the accept particle accelerators at CERN smashing atoms together, trying to generate dark matter particles. And so far, nothing has come up. So there is no like physical dark matter particle that we know of. However, the biggest evidence for dark matter is that you have galaxies and inside galaxies contains many star systems like our solar system. And they orbit the galaxy 
they're orbiting around the center of the galaxy. If you measure the speed of these stars in these galaxies, you'll see that they're moving really, really fast. And from the stars themselves, we know how much mass is in the galaxy. And the amount of mass tells us how much gravity is pulling everything together. These stars are moving so fast that the gravity from the stars alone cannot keep them orbiting this galaxy. They should be flying off in all different directions, but they're not. Something is binding them together. And this binding is what they refer to as dark matter. It's kind of like the glue that holds all the structure together in our universe, because without it, everything would just fall apart. So like I said, there's no direct detection of it so far. And that just means that either it's still very difficult to detect, but there should be millions of these particles passing through us every second, and we haven't detected any of these. So if dark matter isn't real, then that suggests that our theories of gravity to calculate the gravity holding all these stars together in galaxies is wrong. And that means there's room for a new gravity theory to appear. And this is obviously possible. Before we had general relativity, the gravity theory from Einstein, we had Newton's theory of gravity. And that works fine on these like small scales, like here down on Earth. And um, they did tests on like the leaning tower of Pisa to measure gravity there. And Newton's gravity works fine. But Newton's gravity doesn't work on scales of, for example, the solar system for planets, and it doesn't work on even larger scales like that. And that's why general relativity became the dominant gravity theory nowadays. Now, it might be that general relativity only work on our local scales and out there on the galactic and galaxy cluster scales, general relativity doesn't work. And we need a new gravity theory to fit this problem there. So that is possible. But so far, no one has come up with this gravity theory. So it's still an open problem. There have been so many people who are working on it, but there's always the observational evidences that rule out the theories that have been come up so far. Yeah, because that would be like a huge paradigm change to be able to prove that general relativity doesn't apply in this scale. Yeah. Okay, that's clearer in my mind. And so maybe going back to what you did with Euclid, uh, because so Euclid, what's its goal as, and what were you doing in Madrid? Yeah, so my main project that I went there to work on was to build this giant hierarchical model to do cosmology from the raw data that we get from Euclid. So up to that point in my career, everything, like I said, has been done in stages. Someone will collect the data. They will pre-process the raw data from the telescope. Someone else will use that raw image data that's been processed and make a catalog of the shapes of the galaxies. They'll go and measure them and, and then make a table of the shapes of the galaxies. And then the next person along the line will use that kind of table and then use it to generate masses of galaxy clusters. And then the galaxy cluster masses then put into a scaling relation because we can't measure all the masses of all the galaxy clusters. And so we have another step to do that. And then after that, you put it into another model to get the cosmological parameters. So it's all done step by step. There are many reasons why this is a bad idea. And one of the big ones is that at each of these stages, if you're not propagating through your uncertainties properly, then at the end, you're going to get very biased cosmological results. And this probably is a problem because at the moment we have large tensions in the cosmological inference of parameters at the moment, because there's many ways to calculate cosmological parameters. You can measure, for example, the distances to supernova. You can do many different astrophysical, you can measure the cosmic microwave background, which is like early radiation from the early universe. There's many ways that you can estimate these cosmological parameters. And it turns out recently we found that actually most of them don't agree with each other and they're not within the uncertainties. There's like, I don't know, eight sigma, six to eight sigma outliers from each other. And so one of the reason might be is that people aren't doing their kind of statistical analysis properly because you introduce more and more assumptions as you go along. Maybe you're assuming Gaussian errors when you actually have a nice posterior that you could fit into the next stage, but you're not using that. So when I went to ESA, what I wanted to do was build this giant hierarchical model that would fit everything from 
the raw data to the cosmology, do it in a systematic way. Your raw data that you're talking about would be the data coming back from the telescope from Euclid, and it would be data with potential dark matter elements in it? Ideally, yes. Ideally, you want to work with the raw pixel data of Euclid. But actually, like the amount of information there is huge. So in the end, what I got to doing was taking just to the shape measurement data, the tabulated data, and using that to infer the cosmology. And that's already like three stages compressed into one model. If I understood correctly, Euclid is not in space yet. Yeah, so Euclid's not in space yet. So this is what I was developing for in preparation for Euclid, because Euclid's going to have amazing data for weak gravitational lensing. We don't really have big survey data, so big telescopes that observe large regions in the sky to do this kind of analysis. Hubble has like a tiny field of view, only covers like a tiny portion of the sky at the time. So at the moment, we only really have ground-based data, so ground-based telescopes, and these are affected by like the turbulence in our atmosphere and clouds and all sorts of things. And the gravitational signal that we're looking for is 1% compared to the noise. So when you've got like 30% like uncertainties from like cloud coverage or like turbulences in the atmosphere, that's not good. So it's better to go into space where you don't have these effects. So the data from Euclid is going to be much better. So, so far we've got simulated data so we can simulate what the universe looks like, different amounts of dark matter in it, and also put in like the instrumental defects. So things like how the telescope responds to light and stuff into our simulation. So they're very realistic. So I use some of that. And I also use these ground-based surveys, which are quite good as well. Which means you built your model with uh, these simulated data and then this model would be used with uh, Euclid data like in real time while it's in space or is it like several years later that you would be able to use the model with the real data? Yeah, so in general, it would probably be towards the end of the Euclid life that we use all the data because Euclid is going to observe a third of the entire sky. And so we want as many galaxies as we can because it's Bayesian hierarchical model means that we're, we're fitting using all of the data at the same time to get the cosmological parameters out of it. And that requires us to have a complete set of data. So we'd wait until the end of Euclid's mission to apply it. I mean, we could start applying it before, but just to have an idea of how well it works. Yeah, so that's why actually you were uh, building this model before Euclid went into space, right? It, it was to be able to see how the model could um, behave with the data and then maybe to change some part of uh, Euclid's journey. Why would you build that model before the telescope went into space? Mostly it's because it's a proof of concept and it's to show that this would work and it's to motivate having these telescopes. If you want to put a billion pound telescope into space, the government are not just going to fund you because you say, oh, it will probably work. But if you can show, yes, we've tested it on simulations, we've tested it with all the data that we've got existing, they will be more likely to fund your project. Mm, okay, very, very clear. <laughs> and actually, you said that uh, you were using a lot of data. You were getting back a lot of data for these kinds of models. So what are we talking about here? Uh, how big was uh, your data for this project, for instance? The amount of data that I was using for the project so far has been kind of small. So I'm working with about 300 galaxy clusters and the galaxies behind them, probably like two, 3,000 galaxies each. But I guess the number of parameters, right, you've got masses and concentrations for each of these galaxy clusters. So that's already like over 600 parameters. And then the cosmological parameters, you've got a handful of those as well. So several hundreds of parameters there already. When we have Euclid, there'll be 10,000 galaxy clusters. So the dimensionality quickly increases. 
Yeah, because you said it was a hierarchical model. We didn't cover these types of model in the show, but it's coming. <laughs> I have a guest for that, but we talked about it a little. And so what would be your different levels here? It would be the different galaxies and then the planets inside of these galaxies. No, at the top level, what we have is the cosmology. Those are the parameters that we're interested in. And then in the center level, what we have are the masses of the galaxy clusters and the number of galaxy clusters. These are determined by the cosmology. At the bottom level, what we have are the observed ellipticities of the galaxies that we're measuring that are determined by the masses of the galaxy clusters. And then obviously you could go a further level down and look at the raw pixel data because a lot of assumptions go into measuring the shapes of the galaxies as well. Usually you assume an ellipse, but actually we know that galaxies are not perfect ellipses and you have spiral and elliptical galaxies. Some have bulges and some don't. And so some have bars. So galaxies themselves are quite difficult and to uh, measure a shape for. They're not simple, but a lot of assumptions go into that. And it would be good to have like raw pixel data to work with on that. Yeah, so this means that uh, you have a lot of dimensions in your model to these ways. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. That's one You're... of the main reasons that I use STAN because yeah. it works amazing to very high dimensional problems. That was going to be my question. <laughs> you stole my question. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, no, that's good. I have other questions. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, okay. So you, you stand for that. And, uh, and what were the most difficult things you encountered with this model and this data? And how did you solve these difficulties? I guess previously, one of the biggest problems I had in my analysis in general when I encountered Bayesian statistics was like, how do you define your prior? Because sometimes it's not actually that obvious. And then when I came across Bayesian hierarchical models, it was like, well, you don't need to set a prior. You can let your data tell you what that prior is and set a much weaker hyper prior that has much less influence on your model. So I think that is definitely one difficulty that I solved when I encountered Bayesian hierarchical models. With this project in particular, one of the problems that I encountered was that in astronomy, we tend to have these really complicated theoretical models. And so the theoretical model that maps what the cosmology is that determines the number of galaxy clusters and their masses, which is what we call the halo mass function, um, that mapping, that theoretical mapping, is really complex. It involves several embedded integrals and most of them are like integrals between infinity and minus infinity. So if you want to code something like this into STAN, into HNC in general, these are very difficult to do because the integration space is infinite and um, you've got multi-dimensional integrals which actually don't really work. I spent a lot of time trying to solve this problem. And in the end, what we did, so you can't use numerical integration here because when you're using HMC, Hamiltonian Monte Carlo and Stan, you need to be able to compute the gradients. And if you're using numerical integration, then these derivatives are not going to be smooth because you're working in very high dimensional spaces and it could get really complex. And that means it's very difficult to explore this parameter space. So in the end, my solution to that was to use machine learning. I developed a Gaussian mixture model, which is a density mixture model. So it's a Gaussian mixture model to approximate the halo mass function, the number of galaxy clusters as a function of their mass, given the input of cosmology. I made this approximation from the theory that we had. So as long as you had simulations, you could use machine learning to make a mapping from the parameters to the halo mass function that we got out. And then subbing this into Stan then was easy because in machine learning, all you have is matrix multiplication and addition. And so that is much simpler to take derivatives of than your complex astronomical theories 
I think I see your idea. And actually, how much time did you spend on this model? It sounds like a very complex model and something that you can do in two weeks. So Yeah, so actually that project did, like I planned it to take three years and it really did take three years of my time. So it was my entire fellowship working on that project. I had some extra projects on the side, but this one did take all of the time up. Good planning, by the way. <laughs> 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 were you working uh, on this model alone or uh, were you working with other people as well? No, I was working with a lot of people on this. For example, Michael Bettencourt was involved as well, trying to give me advice on the modeling. And I did several trips to New York with the Columbia team trying to figure it out. But in the end, it was like machine learning saves the day. It's still not great. It's still an approximation. But until someone can write a theory to map cosmology to the halo mass function, in a more succinct way, then I think it's the best that we've got. Well, first, that must be awesome to work with Michael Bettencourt on a model. <laughs> And second, that's interesting to know that you could also ask for advice uh, for other people. Because I remember when talking with uh, Michael Bettencourt on the show, he was saying that, uh, well, modeling is uh, very hard to for everyone, <laughs> because usually you try to answer questions that uh, nobody answered before. So that's why it's interesting, but that's also why it's hard. And And so it's very important to have first principled workflow for your modeling, but also to be able to ask other people uh, and experts about their idea and experience. Yeah, and I think like the statistics community is a lot more welcoming than the astronomical community. Like there's a lot of people in astronomy who will not share like any of their data or their methods or anything. They just like keep it all to themselves. But you're seeing like kind of statistics, computer science and that kind of uh, fields. They're very open and people believe that like open data is the way forward. But I think in astronomy, we're still lacking a bit of that. It's getting better, but it's still not quite there. Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's true that when you work with uh, data scientists or statisticians or computer scientists, you take open source and open data parts for granted. But I guess it's not uh, like that everywhere. I think going back to what I said earlier, it might be another problem of like the funding regime that we have in astronomy. Everyone needs to publish papers. But if you've got data, you don't want to share it with other people in case they go and publish it first. That's maybe a wrong incentive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we covered a lot about this project in Madrid. It really sounds amazing. And your model was really nice. I think um, maybe we could look a little at the teaching side now, because I remember that you sometimes do some teaching. So I'm wondering if there are some essential skills that you're trying to instill in your students and also which topics you usually find are the most difficult to impart. So far, like all of the students that I've had are really motivated and like I haven't had to do very much like pushing in any way in particular. I always feel like we're pretty much on the same level and we kind of inspire each other to have new ideas. The essential skills that I try to instill in them in general, I try to persuade them to look at multiple methods to do things because there's not usually a right way or a wrong way to do things. You can do things many different ways and still end up with the right answer. Well, there's no right or wrong answer. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. And what about you then? What are you doing right now? Uh, what are your current research projects and also maybe what are your projects for the coming month? First of October last year, I just took up a position as a research fellowship in the University of Nottingham. And it's in machine learning and cosmology, which is something I'm still kind of getting to grips with. I still feel like a beginner as I feel like a beginner in Bayesian statistics still after like, I don't know, seven years, I still feel like it. But machine learning, I've been doing it for three years now. And I still feel like there's so much to learn but this term I'm teaching a deep learning course so that's quite exciting for me one of the projects that we're going to be doing is getting uh, the students to program their own self-driving cars 
and see uh, how they can do autonomously driving it and also like doing object detection. Like if it sees a human, it should stop. If it sees a traffic light, it should stop or go depending on what it is. I think that is quite exciting. I'm excited to see how that goes. We've got these little Raspberry Pis and little miniature cars to play with for that. I'm still on the path to do this giant hierarchical model from raw data to the very cosmology at the top because cosmology is not an answered question yet. We have tensions in the different observables and the different methods that people use. Some people have been working with the same like data sets and they're still getting different answers out of it. So there is still like a lot to be done. And I truly do believe that building a giant hierarchical model to model it all is the answer to the problems that we're seeing. That sounds uh, amazing. Your uh, machine learning projects uh, sound quite different from what you do with the STEM and astronomical uh, science. So um, I'm wondering what's your uh, stack here, because I guess you're not using STEM for these kinds of projects. You talked about Raspberry Pis. Yeah, so I'm using TensorFlow for these projects. But I think a common misconception that people think machine learning is very, very different to statistics. Actually, machine learning is linear regression. If you can do linear regression on large scales, you're doing machine learning. And so at the end of the day, it's still statistics. There's a lot of parallel in that. And I got into it because working in Euclid, we wanted a way to detect asteroids because they contaminate our data. Because you can imagine if you've got an asteroid moving across the sky, it might appear like it's an elliptical galaxy and it will contaminate our signals. So I wanted to remove that. And the quickest way to do it was to develop a machine learning algorithm to pick them up, detect them and remove them out. I was also talking about the subject of what you're working on. I mean, uh, programming uh, self-driving cars is not exactly the same thing as uh, working on a telescope, I would say. But uh, maybe not. I don't know. What do you, <laughs> what's your take about that? I mean, in my day-to-day, -day, I'm always coding. So I, like I said, I've only been observing one time in my seven-year career. So um, it's very rare that we do anything than debug code on my laptop. And so it's pretty much the same thing. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Um, okay, and so you're using TensorFlow to do that. Okay. Uh, and you're using the R uh, interface of TensorFlow? I'm actually using the Python end of TensorFlow because when I started with TensorFlow, it wasn't available in R. So I started doing it in Python. Like back then, it was TensorFlow version one. Now we've got TensorFlow version two, which is much easier language to understand than the first version. There's also an implementation in R now, and I've got to grips with TensorFlow 2 on Python, but not yet had the chance to explore it in R. But it's something that I'm looking into do it. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> and, and yeah, so do you like uh, TensorFlow for what you're doing right now? Would you advise that to listeners um, doing some similar stuff? I definitely would. I think nowadays TensorFlow version 2 is amazing. Like, yeah, if you ask me, Before, when it was still TensorFlow version one, I would be like, don't waste your time. It's just like so difficult to use. Use Keras instead or something like that. Yeah. But nowadays with the version two, you're version really Version two into... is really, yeah, really good. Really nice. Okay. Okay. That's very interesting. Actually, we talked about that in the previous episode with uh, Junpeng Lao, who is one of the core developers of uh, PyMC3. And uh, he also works uh, on TensorFlow probability. We talked about the design implementation of TensorFlow. It was quite interesting. And actually, the new version of PyMC, PyMC4, will be based on TensorFlow probability. Nice. Yeah. So TensorFlow has like a lot of statistical library as well. Now they have even HMC in TensorFlow and I haven't explored that yet, but that's another thing I'd like to do. Yeah. And if I understood correctly, uh, if I remember what Junpeng said in episode seven, it was like, yeah, the idea of PyMC4 would be to have a user interface on top of these statistical Bayesian statistics functionalities of TensorFlow. That sounds like a very nice project. We're getting short on time. I don't want to take too much of your time. So I'm just going to end with one last question, because I think if you have a quick answer, that would be interesting because you do so many different things. But I was wondering if you have a favorite model or a favorite method, uh, you know, one that you're always happy to use and can share with us. 
I would say generative models in general, like Bayesian hierarchical models, at least in astronomy, it makes sense to think of a lot of things that way because in astronomy, things are hierarchical. Things are created from other things, result from other things. I would share that. I love hierarchical models too. <laughs> that's that's really amazing. I remember when I started learning Bayesian stats, uh, it was like magic to find out these models that could share information between different levels in your data and could also be able to shrink the estimates and basically implementing the idea of uh, regressing a parameter to the mean when the uncertainty around this parameter is very strong. It's very nice. Okay, Maggie, thank you. Before you go, of course, I have to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. The first one is if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Okay, so if I had unlimited time and resources, the problem that I tried to solve is not really an astronomical one, but I think... Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At the moment, we're having a climate crisis. The environment is quite important to me, so it really bugs me that in astronomy or in academia in general, we travel to several conferences all over the world every year, the amount of carbon emissions, and we try to justify it by saying, oh, it's really important because we're networking, meeting people, and it's essential to our research. But actually, I'm not sure it is. I would like to invest like some method where we could organize better how we can still maintain these collaborations and these kind of networking, but traveling less. <laughs> Not a statistical one, but maybe it's statistical. Maybe you could solve it in a statistical way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe with a hierarchical model, maybe. <laughs> but that's interesting. I have to say, I'm surprised. I thought you would have said like uh, solving your uh, giant uh, hierarchical Bayesian model for the Euclid uh, telescope. I think our computing powers are not quite there yet to do everything from scratch. Some very clever ways need to be developed in order to move forward with this. I don't think it's something that just time and resources will solve. It needs some brains. It needs some clever people to come along. <laughs> no, and I think indeed, uh, until uh, you guys figure out a way for us to fly to other planets with our pink suits, we only have one planet <laughs> at our disposal. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, and the second question is, uh, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? So my choice would be Darwin Newman. And she used to be a deputy administrator at NASA. So that's pretty impressive. But she is my absolute role model. She's an MIT professor in aeronautics. And her main research is in designing spacesuits and studying the effects of space on the human body. And I think it's incredible the amount of stuff that she's achieved. So I'd really like to meet her. I know she's heard of me before, but if I ever get the chance to sit down with someone and pick their brains, it would be Darwin Newman, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. She sounds amazing. I'm not sure she listens to this podcast, but let's <laughs> Fingers <hope> so. crossed. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, Maggie, thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking with you. I know I'm being original here, I think, but I find uh, astrophysics fascinating. I'm happy to see Bayesian tools uh, such as Stan being used there. And um, I hope we passed your passion and enthusiasm to listeners. It was really, really passionating listening to you. And maybe you even inspired some of them to go on and learn about astronomy and maybe design a pink space suits. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. As always, I'll put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Maggie, for taking the time and being on this show. Yeah, thank you for having me. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, Fit MC Lars, and Mega Ranch.
check out his awesome work at babebrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Endora. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Endora, like the country. Thanks so much for listening. You're truly a good Bayesian. and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation. 